0: Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I am going to uh, take our first look at uh, Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Uh, This is a preview episode, meaning that I have not played with any of the cards in this set. I guess technically there are, are a couple of reprints, but I have not played with the set. I have studied the commons and uncommons pretty extensively. Uh, going over them in primarily color pairs and thinking about what each of the like color pairs are trying to do and which of the cards support those themes and how well supported those themes are and whether they look powerful or not and all that and today I'm going to share that with you but all of this is just based on my own assessments so giant grain of salt for the fact that I haven't played with any of this yet but I done my homework, so hopefully it's not too far off. So the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes for uh, appropriate patrons. These notes go into detail on the key uncommons and key commons for each of the archetypes, listing cards that stood out to me as supporting that archetype. It's not necessarily, in all cases, the strongest cards that could be in that archetype it's the card it's like a combination of power it's power level is essential to figuring out what's important to an archetype because a card needs to be strong in order to pull you into an archetype but i'm primarily looking at which cards support the themes or would lead you want to want to draft that color pair in an archetype so that's uh kind of what's going on with the cards that I've listed in these notes for people who have the notes to follow along with. And then I'll be talking through some of it, but since it's just like a very long list of uh, indecipherable to people who have not played it card names and then reading full text, it's not great to have to read a ton of full text. I'm going to try to summarize with a few examples or something. Uh, We'll see what feels right when I get to it. So. That's that's what we're gonna do. So this is gonna be archetype by archetype, and then some kind of overall thoughts at the end. So starting with blue-white, uh blue white's stated theme is artifacts, specifically artifact control. Uh this is as opposed to blue-red, which is designed as artifact aggro. And then red-white is tap mid-range, according to like the wizard's archetype description thing. Um in reality, I think All three of these, uh, like all of the Jeskai colors lean pretty heavily into artifacts. Talk some about how the three color groups, some of them make sense and some of them don't. Most of them don't. A few of them make a lot of sense. Uh, Jeskai is very centered on artifacts. And then you have your like blue, red, aggro, blue, white control, and then red, white in the middle, theoretically. I... Think that red white is on the more aggressive side. I, I suspect that blue red and red white are both can shift a little bit toward more controlling, but kind of by default want to be more aggressive. Blue white, I think, is pretty firmly more controlling. So, most of the key cards that you're looking for in blue white are basically just like cheap artifacts that hang out in play. A lot of them have craft or are good with crafting, where they do something that gives you some kind of value right away. Uh, And then you have this thing that's hanging out and you have a lot of cards that like that there's a thing hanging out. And then you get all these things that are hanging out that let you spend mana uh, to turn them into a high impact thing in the late game. So you're kind of just like littering the board with like permanents that don't really do anything. And then trying to make the game go long enough that you can invest mana in all of them to make them do something. So for example... Clay-fired bricks uh, is a pretty important white uncommon to, I think, like all of the white archetypes except for white green. And the reason for that is that it's so clay-fired bricks is one in a white for an artifact. When it enters the battlefield, you search your library for planes, put it in your hand and gain two life. And then for five mana, five, sorry, seven mana, five white white, you can craft it with an artifact. So you have to exile an artifact from player from your graveyard to transform it into a card that gives all of your creatures plus one plus one and makes two one one Artifact Gnome creatures. So up front, you're just getting a land and two life for two mana, and then you have this extra Artifact in play. The reason that you want this is there are a lot of cards that let you tap Artifacts for some kind of value, or that get benefits when you control Artifacts, or... In white, black, there are a lot of cards that let you sacrifice artifacts for some kind of effect. So you can use this artifact after it's found to planes to do something else. You can craft it into something else. You can sacrifice it uh, to get an effect, maybe get something from the fact that it's gone to the graveyard through descend triggers. And then if you don't do that and you end up having it in play, once you have seven mana, there will likely be an artifact in your graveyard and then you can convert it into... Like a glorious anthem, and two one ones that are then two twos. So you're putting four four uh, worth of power and toughness into play immediately, in addition to pumping the rest of your team, and then it continues pumping the rest of your team. That's kind of there. There are a bunch of cards that are kind of in that space. Um, for example, spring-loaded saw blades is another kind of premium white uncommon for defensive decks. That's one and a white artifact with flash. When it enters the battlefield, it deals five damage to a tapped creature. And then for three and a white, uh, you can craft it with another artifact and it becomes a five five vehicle that you can crew by tapping two other artifacts or creatures or it just has crew one. So that's another thing where you got a removal spell up front and then it left an artifact just hanging out on the battlefield, being an artifact, letting you tap it for stuff you'd want to tap artifacts for. And then it also gives you this like mana sink where you can turn it into uh, a body and the body is pretty good if you have other artifacts around that can crew it. Without even you know needing to tap a creature potentially. So white green is like pump aggro and green doesn't really care about artifacts. But the other white archetypes you have you know blue white is artifact control, red white likes to have a bunch of objects because it's kind of about tapping things for extra value. And then uh, white black you can sacrifice these things to your sacrifice effects and you have a bunch of those white blacks sacrifice theme. So all of these like random trinket uncommons matter for that stuff. And then among commons, Adaptive Gem Guard. This is three and a white for a 3-3. And then at sorcery speed, you can tap two untapped artifacts and or creatures you control to put a plus one plus one counter on this. That's kind of like doing the red white stated thing. But it makes a lot of sense in blue white to have this creature that you can just make bigger with your objects that are lying around. Um, you're planning to play a long game so it can hang out and block for you while you're growing it. Then there's Inverted Iceberg, this is one and a blue. When it enters the battlefield, you mill one and draw a card. And then for six mana, you can craft it into a six six that like untaps an artifact when it attacks or something. So this is a prophetic prism type card. It doesn't fix your mana, but it cycles into play. And then it's just in place. You can tap it for your gem guards or your other stuff. It milled you, maybe you hit something that you can craft with off of that mill. And then, you know, like all this, the other things, in the late game, you can spend some mana and turn it into a threat. There's also Oaken Siren, which is uh, one and a blue for a 1-2 Flying Vigilance. And it taps for a blue mana that you can only use to cast artifacts. So this thing's pretty good at getting in for one damage. And then it's also a mana creature, and it can do both at the same time. I think as long as your deck is mostly artifacts, uh, this card's very good. And then... Another really key white common, again, I think that this card's super important for all of the white archetypes, except green-white, um, is Tinker's Tote. This is two and a white artifact. When it enters the battlefield, you make two 1-1 gnomes, and then you can spend a white and sacrifice Tinker's Tote to gain three life. I think that you're not going to want to do that very often. Maybe if you're planning to craft with it, you can sacrifice it the turn before you would craft with it um, to craft with it from the graveyard. Uh, But this is three objects for three mana, and all of the white archetypes, uh, except green white, are very interested in just counting your objects. You can generally use artifacts and creatures interchangeably, so the fact that only two of your objects are gnomes, while one of them is just like an artifact that's not actively doing anything, those aren't really that different, I think. So this is just a lot of objects in a lot of uh, archetypes that care about the objects. So, yeah, I think there's, like, pretty good support um, in terms of just, like, cards that uh, either, like, draw a card or get you a card in some way immediately or get you a card's worth of value in the case of, like, the saw blades, or, you know, give you multiple objects, one of which is an artifact. So I think that uh, there's pretty good support for this, like, go wide, have a bunch of artifacts plan. Uh, You're, you know, trying to play a control game, so you want to prioritize removal in addition to this, like, you know, just cards that make objects. But I think that uh, blue-white's theme overall makes a good amount of sense. The blue-white signpost card, incidentally, uh, Master's Guide Mural, is a 5-mana artifact that makes a 4-4 golem when it enters. And then the artifact itself doesn't do anything except that it has a craft ability after it makes that golem. And for seven mana, you can flip it over into a thing that like, you can tap to make a golem if an artifact entered the battlefield this turn, including when you craft it, it exiles and comes back so it enters and so it can make a golem right away. Very good like source of inevitability, but I do think five mana for a 4-4 four, four is pretty below rate. And then you need seven mana to make another golem. It's going to like win long games eventually, but I think as far as like gold signpost cards go, I'm relatively low on it. I think that like you want to have a bunch of these like other things that you can spend mana to turn them into like threats late. And I feel like in a lot of ways, Master's Guide is just like more of what your deck already does anyway. So I'm not super high on that. Like I don't think that I want to take it as a reason to go into blue white. I'm much more interested in taking some of these kind of just know the, the the value artifacts that support any of a variety of different archetypes and then figuring out which lane they put me into as far as my early picks that are going to get me into this archetype up next white black white black stated theme is sacrifice some notable uncommons the white black signpost gold uncommon is bartolome del presidio presidio whatever Uh, It's a 2-1. You can sacrifice an artifact or creature to put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, You can do that at instant speed, and it doesn't cost anything to do it. So it's a free sac outlet that's always available. In general, I think free sac outlets play better than they read. There are just a lot of spots where things naturally are going to die, and if it doesn't cost you anything to be able to sac them to get value out of it, you end up doing that a lot. So I expect this will be pretty good. Abyssal Gore Stalker is a 4 BB, so 6 mana, 6, 6. When it enters the battlefield, each player sacrifices two creatures. If you have like random creatures that don't matter, like there are 1-1 one, one fungus tokens that can't block, for example, that you can sacrifice and your opponent's losing two real creatures, uh, it's going to be very good for you. Chupacabra Echo. This is a 3-2 uncommon when, uh, for 2 BB. When it enters the battlefield, target creature gets minus X minus X, where X is the number of permanents in your graveyard. It's a very strong effect if you could like get some stuff in your graveyard. And then if you're playing like a sacrifice theme, you can probably you're probably gonna be sacrificing permanents and they'll end up in your graveyard. And so it'll work. And then as I mentioned, you're still gonna be looking for the white artifact enabler stuff that just gives you objects that you can sacrifice. And then I think that this deck really wants to prioritize like one mana creatures. There are a lot of cheap creatures that work reasonably as far as things that you can sacrifice, but also work well and as things that you can uh, buff. So jumping ahead a little to a key common, there's a common called Glorifier of Suffering, which is two and a white for a 3-2. When it enters the battlefield, you can sac a creature or an artifact, and when you do, you can put a, a plus one plus one counter on each of up to two creatures. It can target itself, which is very important. In the past, there have been some creatures that do this, but they don't target themselves. So you need to have two other creatures to get two counters out of it. With this one, you only need one other creature in addition to a thing that you're sacrificing to get two counters. It also only costs three mana, where this effect often costs four mana. So um, if you can play a creature or a thing that you can sacrifice, and or a thing that you can sacrifice on turn one and then a creature and or thing you can sacrifice on turn two. Then on turn three, you play this, you sacrifice one of the things, you pump itself, and you pump another thing. The reason that I think that's good is that it just gets you a lot of power in play, uh, which is particularly good because um, there are a number of like 1 and 2 mana 1-1 uh, one, one creatures that have flying and an additional ability, like lifelink or vigilance, so there's like Rune Lurker Bat at Uncommon is a one mana one one flying lifelink at the end at uh the beginning of your end step. If you descended this turn, you get to scry one. And so like playing that and then something that you want to sacrifice, and then glorifier of suffering to put a counter on that and a counter on the glorifier, uh, means that you'll get to attack with a 2-2 two, two flying lifelink and have a four-three and get to scry at your end step, in addition to whatever the thing that you sacrificed did. So I think that. Uh, black White is looking to be pretty aggressive because it's looking to have a low curve because it wants to play a bunch of cheap things that are like good to sacrifice or good to pump with this uh, Glorifier of Suffering type card. And I think that the deck ends up playing like a very nickel and diny aggro game, very uh, similar to other Orzhov decks where you're just like. Doing one, making your opponent like lose one life a bunch in different ways, either through evasive attackers or there's like a common uh, three mana one four. You can tap, sacrifice a creature or artifact to drain your opponent for one. This kind of card reads is pretty unimpressive, but uh, I know Grima slightly overperformed in um, Lord of the Rings as far as like a way to kind of like close out a game that was a little bit stalled and this effect is pretty similar to that that that's kind of like the general play pattern that I'm expecting here is um you're going to go go wide with cheap stuff uh you're going to have a decent amount of evasion you're going to have some ways to pump your creatures you're going to have some ways to make your opponent lose life outside of combat and you're going to attack early get them low by the time they stabilize and then try to like finish them off before they can turn the corner there there are some other like you know market gnome for example the o3 that draws a card uh when it and gains life when it dies would be a good thing to put in that curve that you're where you're trying to sacrifice it um at common there's a one-on-one flying vigilance that when it dies target creature explores for a single white and then there's also oh another card that i'm pretty excited about is uh mephitic draft this is one in a black artifact when it enters the battlefield or when it goes to the graveyard from the battlefield, you lose life and draw a card. So I think Mephitic Draft is kind of like the most important common for white-black. Um, and I don't think most of the other decks are that excited about it because most of the other decks are going to have trouble getting it to the, go to the graveyard or it won't be as easy as it is for white-black. And because most of the I-want-an-artifact to be in play as an object stuff is in jaskai uh there's less competition to get it just as a cantrip like artifact there's still uh you know like i think blue black is pretty interested in having it and finding any black cards that they can that let them sacrifice it because it's a good way to trigger descend uh potentially same thing with green black but it's easiest to use in white black so There's a chance that you'll get more of them than you would if it were, if other people could use it as well as you could when you're in white black. Um, And then you know, two mana draw two, and enable a sacrifice is very very good. So I think that's the you know a key grindy card in this like archetype that's otherwise pretty aggressive. You also have like Skullcap Snail that's a one mana two mana one one when it enters the battlefield, your opponent exiles a card from their hand that's another, you know, good thing that you can just like, you got some value out of and you can be pretty happy to sacrifice. So overall, I think uh, the theme seems pretty well supported. There are a number of sack outlets and a lot of like ways to get reasonable things to sacrifice. And yeah, I I think that that archetype is going to be pretty fun. Um, I will probably draft it in a way that like leans a little bit more value over a little bit more aggro, where I think the best performing aggregate versions will be a little bit more aggressive than the ones that I draft. I mentioned you know, really leaning into Glorifier of Suffering. I think that's what's gonna work better for most people and I probably won't do quite enough knowing me. Moving on to White Red. Uh, White Red's stated theme, as I mentioned, is tapping mid-range. Um, so there are a number of uh, cards that let you tap two artifacts or creatures for some kind of effect. And then there are also some uh, things that do something when they become tapped. It looks like this is another attempt to get kind of like a lore hold style approach to Red White, where you can play more of a mid-range game. Uh, you like getting artifacts in play. You can do craft stuff to get more power later. Um, I don't know how well that actually worked uh it still looks to me like while you might be able to draft this a little bit more with like more of an eye toward the late game i still think you mostly want to try to be aggressive most or all of the stuff that lets you uh tap things for some kind of effect either can only be used at sorcery speed or can only be used like when you attack so you can't just like hang out with all your stuff untapped on your opponent's turn and then get a bunch of value by tapping your things in their end step. That means that like this mechanic in general doesn't pair super well with blocking. So it's you know easier if you're uh, if you're the proactive um, deck in the matchup. So I, I think that red-white's gonna end up being pretty aggressive, but it's you know interesting to uh, have a set that supports it being something other than just like boros go wide aggro or whatever. Um, so the signpost uncommon for this is Caparopti Sunborn. This is uh, four mana four four when it attacks. You can tap two artifacts or creatures to discover three. Four-four for four, four, four is pretty good. Uh, a braid is one of the premium removal spells at Common, um, which obviously doesn't kill this. It's you know decently likely to untap after you play with it, after you play it. And then when you attack, uh, getting to discover in combat while attacking with a 4-4 is very good. It's not hard to have two things to tap. Um, there is also a, a common 3-mana um, creature that can tap to give something haste. So if you have a very good draw, you can potentially play this, tap something to give it haste, and tap other things to discover with it the turn you play it. Um, not easy to do, to do that on turn 4 because your entire turn three is going to get haste, and so you need to have two other objects that you played on turns uh, one and two um, to activate it, but it is possible. Careening Minecart is a three-mana, three-three vehicle with crew one that makes a treasure when it attacks. Anything that makes a treasure is particularly valuable in red-white, because these treasures can just kind of like hang out and tap for your your stuff. Um, So I think that one's pretty interesting. And then, you know, as as with all the others, you're into the like clay fired brick style cards, the like white artifacts that give you some kind of value when you play them and then just kind of hang out. Diamond pickaxe is a red indestructible equipment for a single red to cast, two to equip. Equipped creature gets plus two, plus two. And when it attacks, you make a treasure. It's another way to make a treasure just to get a bunch of artifacts into play. Um, And then dousing device is a pretty weird card. It's uh, one and a red for an artifact. Uh, when this or another artifact enters the battlefield, target creature gets plus one, plus and haste. So obviously with any artifact creature, this gives, like, the creature can give itself haste. So um, this is a two-mana card that gives all your artifact creatures haste and also gives them an extra power to the turn they enter. And then if you have four artifacts uh, when this triggers, you transform it into a land that taps for red, um, and then you can tap two in a red and tap it to give target creature plus X plus O, where X is the number of artifacts you control at sorcery speed. Uh, very good if you have, like, a flyer or a trampler or something. Um, this kind of card that, like, takes a whole card and only pumps, like, a creature temporarily um, is difficult to evaluate and often bad, but I'm pretty optimistic about this one. And then, yeah, you, you, there are a bunch of other... Random uncommons that are decent in this archetype, um, and then commons. You have the the gem guard, the th- three mana three three that you can tap two things to put up a plus one plus one counter on it. at its sorcery speed. So we've seen a lot of four mana three threes that have ways to grow periodically. Um, the blue four mana four uh, four mana three three in Lord of the Rings that grows when you draw your second card comes to mind as a premium example. That one was pretty easy to grow every turn and pretty bad. In general, I'm not very optimistic about 4-mana 3-3 that grows over time, but I do think that pretty realistic to be able to get to the point where this is growing multiple times a turn, and it's pretty easy to have it grow the turn you play it. It's possible that this will just be bad, but it seems to me like it has much higher upside than a lot of similar cards. More on that topic when I get to red-black. There's uh, a common... Two mana two Artifact in both red and white. Uh, the white one, when it becomes tapped, Scry's one. The red one, when it becomes tapped, Rummage's. Um, those are kind of your, like, I don't know, Workman-like uh, Nuts and Bolts uh, kind of enabler for what's going on in this deck. Obviously, um, the Tinkerer's Tote is a really good way to get a bunch of objects to use the Gem Guard. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, like... Overall, red white looks pretty aggressive to me, but maybe better at playing late games than red white x would normally be. Up next, uh, white green. So white green's stated theme is buffs aggro. This is not very deeply supported in terms of payoffs for having creatures that are bigger. So the signpost uncommon in green white is. Um, Kutzel, Malamut, Explorer. This is one green-white for a 3-3. Three, three. Uh, your opponents can't cast spells on your turn. And when one or more creatures with power greater than uh, their base power uh, deal combat damage uh, to an opponent, draw a card. This is really the thing that asks you to have creatures that are bigger. I think I saw a tweet um, that there might have like been more of these at some point in the set's development, but they were removed because... They read pretty awkward. There's another one of them at a higher rarity, um, but there are only those two. And then there are a lot of cards that support that theme. There are a lot of cards that uh, put plus one, plus one counters on things. Uh, There are cards that explore. And obviously when you explore, you might get a plus one, plus one counter. There is and artifact that interacts with plus one plus one counters um i think it's pretty good explorers cache it's one in a green it enters with two plus one plus one counters on it and at sorcery speed you can tap it to move a counter from it to another creature and then also whenever a creature with a plus one plus one counter on it dies this gets a plus one plus one counter so this artifact ends up being worth more than plus two plus two over time uh because you like get some of those back and then can keep moving them around. Yeah. So there are a bunch of things that put counters on stuff. And then obviously, as I've talked about a lot um with equipment and uh stuff in previous uh episodes, you know, a plus one plus one counter is kind of worth an amount that's proportional to the number of the number of and or strength of keywords on that plus one plus one counter, or the thing that has the plus one plus one counter. Like a creature with flying getting bigger is a lot better than a creature without flying getting bigger, a creature with lifelink getting bigger is a lot better than a creature without lifelink getting bigger, um, a creature with both flying and lifelink getting bigger is very valuable, a creature with double strike getting uh, bigger is about twice as good as a creature without double strike getting bigger, so this archetype, given that it has a lot of ways to put counters on some things, is looking for keywords, Kinjali's dawn runner is a uh, a 3-mana 1-1 that explores an enters the battlefield and has double strike. That would be a card that you're looking for to put counters on. In general, I don't think green-white has that many cards with good keywords. Uh, Colossidactyl is two green-green for a 4-5 reach trample. That's a relatively good one. Uh, it's another uncommon. So overall, I think my 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 guess is that this is an archetype that was like somewhat gutted in development and didn't quite get enough back. And so um there's like a lot of enablers for it and not a lot of payoffs. You do have like creatures that are reasonably big. You have some keyword some creatures with keywords that you can put counters on. Uh, Miner's guide wing, the one-one flying vigilance for one, uh that when it dies, target creature explores. another really good one to be putting counters on uh flying plus vigilance is great for making bigger and then also staggering size one in a green instant target creature gets plus three plus three and trample uh the last time this was printed it was called predator strike and it was in uh, uh, original mirrodin a long time ago Um, and i thought that it was one of the best uh, cards at common in that set that was about 20 years ago and uh, power creep has happened, um, so I don't know that staggering size will be as good as predator strike was, but it's a reasonable card to try to build like an aggressive strategy around. Um, overall, I'm not super optimistic about the amount of synergy here, but uh, it's something. Moving on to blue black, um, the stated archetype here is descend control so uh descend cares about permanence being in or entering your graveyard a blue black control deck typically isn't going to be all that good at having permanence you're going to want a lot of instance and sorceries uh i think the same is true here i think the deck does want a lot of instance and sorceries i think you want removal card draw counter spells and most of that is going to come from instance and sorceries. But there are some cards that let that make it easy to get stuff in the graveyard. Uh some things that mill or discard and you know you'll have permanence in your deck. So I do think that you can enable your descend stuff, but you also do have to be mindful of your like ratio of permanence to non-permanence. Uh just you know en- enablers and payoffs in general when you're drafting this deck. So as far as like stuff you're looking for here, there's some good removal. I don't need to go into the details about that. There's a six-mana 4-4 four, four flyer. Uh, if you have four permanents in your graveyard when you play it, you get to bounce something. Um, there's a five-mana uh, sorcery that returns a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield, and then that creature explores twice. This is particularly noteworthy because there's a cycle of uh, creatures with land cycling. The blue creature with land cycling has ward three, and it's a six, seven, um, and it has island cycling. So you can island cycle it uh, to have a permanent in your graveyard for a descend. uh, If you have things that care about uh, having descended that turn, uh, you can trigger those. And then uh, you can get it into play for five mana and have it explore twice, and then you know potentially have like an eight nine or maybe a six seven that drew some cards um, with Ward three. Um, so that's like a reasonable kind of like go to plan for your like Zombify. Um, and then there's also uh, a similar Lamp Cycler in every other color, Hoverstone Pilgrim. This is a card that I know a lot of people thought of me when they saw it. This is a 5-mana, 2-5 flying creature with Ward 2. And you can spend 2 mana to put a creature from a graveyard on the bottom of its owner's library. I think Ward 2 makes this card quite a bit better than it would otherwise be. Uh, Flying is also important. And I do think 2 mana to put a card from a graveyard on the bottom of its owner's library is a really strong ability in this set and especially in this archetype. There are a lot of ways to mill yourself, um, so I think that it's going to be reasonable to uh, get to the point where you would run out of cards to play, uh, or run out of cards in your deck if you didn't have this. And also, um, unlike the card that uh, I've been playing in um, Shadows over Ixalan remastered, or Shadows not Ixalan, Shadows over Innistrad remastered, uh, Epitaph Golem, this can target your opponent's stuff, so you can. Um, turn off their descend, you can mess with their ability to craft. I think this card is actually gonna be pretty important for this archetype. Often I play these cards, but they're like kind of a meme. Um, But I I think this one's like legitimately good and important for what's going on here. There are some other cards that let you explore sometimes multiple times, sometimes once. Those are good ways to uh, potentially get stuff in the graveyard for um, your descend count. Uh, there is a four mana, three, two artifact creature that when it enters the battlefield. You can search your, your library for basic land or cave and put it onto the battlefield tapped. I think this is mostly going to be something that like people drafting the cave deck, which we'll talk about later are going to want, but I think it's pretty good in blue black. You use a lot of mana and it trades off pretty easily. And then it gets you a thing in the graveyard. At common, you have um, a four mana, draw three, discard one sorcery. Um, you also have, that's you know just a good control card and the discard one uh, is often gonna discard a land that's gonna help with your uh, descend stuff. Um, another chance is two and a black, mill two, then you can return two creatures from your graveyard to your hand. Uh, the mill is optional. I think this card's very good. Um, buried treasure is a really interesting card. Uh, it's a two mana treasure. Um, it like just a two mana artifact that can sacrifice a mana of any color. You can spend five mana and exile it from your graveyard to discover five. So it's a card that you can put in your graveyard at any time, um, and then it's active from your graveyard. I think it's you know pretty clearly a lot better if you discard it or mill it than if you like actually cast it and sacrifice it for a mana. But you know it this is something that you really want to pair with uh, Ancestral sense, the draw three, discard one, or Anything else you can find that's going to let you have some kind of looting effect, or play if you have a lot of self mill, the graveyard value is pretty nice, and it's you know just hanging out and powering up your descent before you discover with it. Uh, dead weight, um, it's going to be uh, better here than in other places because it's a removal spell that's also permanent in your graveyard. And Then there's some other like little enablers, like there's a two mana one one death touch that mills two when it enters, um, and there's a Three mana, three two, that when it look, when it enters, you can look at the top three cards of your library, put up to one on top, back on top, and the rest in your graveyard, so you get some card selection plus some self mill on a creature that's also able to trade off pretty well. I think that's pretty good. So all in all, I think, you know, the tools are here. There are reasonable counter spells, reasonable removal spells, reasonable enablers. You need to be uh, pretty careful with uh, how you're going to balance the various needs of a deck that needs... You know uh enablers and payoffs and permanents and non-permanents and stuff but i think blue black looks pretty fun so moving on to blue red as i mentioned the stated theme here is artifact aggro there are also some pirate synergies um, um the signpost uncommon here is uh captain storm cosmium raider it's, uh blue red for a two-two, and whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control you put a plus one plus one counter on a pirate I think this card is very good. I think that uh, Blue-Red wants to play a lot of creatures that are artifacts or creatures that make an artifact when they enter. I think it's pretty reasonable to get it so uh, this thing is making a plus one, plus one counter when almost any of your creatures enter. And also sometimes when you do other stuff, there's a bounce spell that makes a map that triggers this at instant speed. There's a plus two, plus oh, and first strike combat trick. That makes a treasure and triggers this at instant speed uh, i think captain storm is really good uh it also works with careening minecart, the uh vehicle that um has uh the three mana vehicle with crew one that becomes a three three that makes a treasure uh the diamond pickaxe so a lot of ways to um make artifacts often multiple artifacts so i, I think that's going to work out pretty well enterprising scallywag another thing that's going to make multiple artifacts this is a 2-mana, 2-2, and at at the end of your turn, if you descended, you make a treasure. Spyglass Siren is a 1-mana, 1-1 flyer that makes a map when it enters. I think Staunch Crewmate is very good in this archetype. It's a 2-mana, 2-1. When it enters the battlefield, you can look at the top four cards of your library to choose an artifact or creature and put it into your hand. Yeah, and then some other uh, relevant cards for this. Uh, Cogwork Wrestler. It's a 1-mana, one 1-2 one, flash artifact creature that when it enters gives something minus 2, minus 0. Also another instant way to trigger Captain Storm. But I think just, I have been impressed in the past with cards like this in blue-red aggressive decks. It's pretty easy to have red creatures that your opponent has to like try to trade with. And then you can protect them with this thing while getting another artifact into play, another creature into play. It's just a good like go-wide tempo type play. Also, the red one drop goblin tomb, uh, tomb raider. This is uh, red for a one two, but if you have an artifact, it gets plus one plus zero and haste. Uh, it's basically not going to be a two two haste on turn one, but if you anytime you draw it after that, it's almost always just going to be a two two haste for one, which is great. I think blue red looks very good and very aggressive overall. Brazen Blademaster is a three mana, two, three. When it attacks, it gets plus two, plus one if you control two or more artifacts. I think it's going to be very easy to have two or more artifacts um, given all the stuff that's making maps and treasures um, in addition to equipment and vehicles and artifact creatures. Um, So a three mana, four, four on offense at common is going to play very well um, in this Kind of strategy you also have a two mana three three and shipwreck sentry which is uh one in blue for a three three defender that can attack if an artifact entered that one's a little bit awkward just because it forces you to play your spells before combat so it doesn't play well with combat tricks but uh three three for two in blue red is pretty great yeah i think i think blue red is we're very much not doing the spells thing which is nice we've, we've done a lot of the spells thing and this feels very blue red, but in a very different way. This is very blue red aggro. Um, I do think that like the tricks and bounce spells and artifact synergies and stuff are going to feel are going to give it a pretty blue feeling, while it's going to do the like fun tempo tempo aggro thing. So yeah, I'm I'm optimistic about blue red. Up next, uh, blue green. Um the stated theme for blue green is explore mid-range. It's kind of merfolk-y in that the merfolk often there are a lot of merfolk that explore. The key cards for this are basically just a bunch of cards that explore. Um, because exploring lets you put cards in the graveyard, I think that this uh, uses the blue and green descend cards pretty well. So we just talked about blue-black, which has like You know, heavy descend theme. Uh, Blue green has a heavy explore theme. Green black is also a heavy descend theme. So I talked about how Jeskai is doing artifacts. Sultai is really doing graveyard and doing like descend and explore, and it's all kind of the same thing. And I think that because green's in the mix and blue's in the mix and these decks all want to be pretty controlling, I see myself playing. Sultai specifically pretty often. I'm less sure that I'm going to be playing Jeskai often. I might end up finding a Jeskai control deck that I like, but Jeskai is a little too aggressive for me to like. think I'm going to be really excited about it. Although the existence of treasure and the existence of colorless fixing cards that are artifacts that my artifact deck is interested in anyway means that I wouldn't be terribly surprised if I find myself being like Jeskai artifacts more often than I might have thought a second ago. So yeah, I think like Jeskai and Sultai are two of the major like three color decks. I think a lot of the other three color decks don't really make sense, but I think those two really, really do. I think a lot of the uh, you know green cards that you're going to be blue and green cards you're going to be looking for in blue green are going to be things that explore, other things that mill you, and then stuff that cares about. Your graveyard incidentally the signpost uncommon here is the cancel or something like that current conductor uh, blue green two three for two uh, when you explore a land put it onto the battlefield tab when you explore a non-land this gets a plus and plus one counter uh, very good if you're doing a lot of exploring um, there's another uh kind of signpost uncommon explore enabler which is twists and turns the green enchantment if a creature would explore scry one then then explore um and when the ETV is a creature explores and then you have seven lands this turns into like uh a land that taps for a green or you can spend three mana and tap it to look at your top four for a creature and put it into play so it's like a search for a scanta, but for creatures i think that's going to be good if you have like a lot of explore. not very good otherwise but pretty good with the uh you Know uh the blue green explore uncommon payoff thing, yeah. I'm not going to get too much into listing all of the random commons that apply here. You, know, you have poison, poison dart frog, the mana creature. Um, it's a one and a green for a one one death touch. Uh, or sorry, a one one reach. You can tap it for mana of any color, and you can spend two mana to give it death touch until end of turn. So, you got some ramp, you got like the land cyclers. You get a bunch of explore, you get some descend payoffs. Um, you're mid-range because you kind of want to play these land cyclers to enable your des- descend stuff. And so that you have something to do with all the extra lands you end up getting from exploring. And then you can play the mana creature. And so then you just kind of like explore to like get some value to play big stuff in the late game. And your big stuff is better if you descend. I think that's basically what's going on in blue-green. But again, I think it's also often going to want to get some black in there. Black Red's stated theme, moving on to the next archetype, is descend aggro. The idea is you're supposed to be in uh kind of the like reckless aggro where you like attack with a bunch of stuff and some of it dies and it triggers your other things so you don't really care that it died. I think the support for this looks terrible. um there are might like so there are a bunch of things that I think are basically bad versions of the white creature that you can tap two things to put a plus one plus one counter on you have four mana three four and four mana three three that at the end of your turn if you descended they one the three three gets a plus one plus one counter and the four three makes a one one fungus that can't block these things like slowly and conditionally grow there's a three mana two two menace that grows if you descended. I think all of these are just like a really bad rate. Like they'd be okay, but still kind of underwhelming if you were guaranteed to trigger them. And I think in reality, you're going to fail to trigger them somewhat often. I don't really get why any of the like printed synergies here would actually work. So like black red might be fine, but it's going to be super, super low synergy um, is my read of the cards that look like they're supposed to go in it i do think that the black red signpost uncommon is just a strong card zioa lava tongue is a black red 2-2 death touch at the end of your turn if you descended your opponent either discards a card sacrifices a permanent or takes three i don't think it's anything special but it's pretty solid um i think it's worse than like the other two mana gold cards um and i think that its synergies are less supported so i don't know basically i'm really low on black red uh at least from a synergy perspective up next red green red green's dinosaurs there's an uncommon mana creature for one mana that can tap for a mana to cast dinosaurs unfortunately there are only seven common dinosaurs two of them are the expensive land cycling creatures Two of them are 4 mana 4 3s. The green one explores. The red one is an artifact that gives a creature menace when it enters. I think the green one's a lot better than the red one. Um, there's a 6 mana 7 7 ETB Scry 2. You can spend 4 mana to make it unblockable by creatures with power 2 or less. That card seems pretty solid. There's a 5 mana 4 5 Reach that taps deal 2. Playable but very unexciting. Um, and then there's a 3-mana three 3-3 three, three that, uh, if you have a dinosaur, gains 3 life. I'm not very impressed by the common dinosaur offerings. Um, they are fine, but really don't make a deck. The uncommon dinosaurs are quite a bit better. Um, there is a 2-mana 3-2 trample, um, which is pretty good to begin with. It's just 1 in a red for a 3-2 trample. But also, whenever another dinosaur enters the battlefield, this copies its base power and toughness until under turn and your other dinosaurs are often pretty big so um that one's pretty good and then uh it's Quint uh firstborn of gishath is the red green signpost card it's a two three haste for two um, and then when it enters you can spend two mana and if you do a dinosaur you control deals damage equally its power to another creature um, so you can play this as a four mana uh, two three deal two like a twin shot sniper that also has haste, but if you have like a bigger another like bigger creature, then it deals more damage than that, and also you can just play it as two three haste on turn two. So I think that card's really good. Um, so both of the two mana uncommon dinosaurs are really good, and then at three mana you have Thrashing Brontodon, the uh reprinted for uh three four that you can spend one mana attack it at to disenchant, and then uh scythe claw raptor which is a four three for three whenever a player plays a spell uh, during another player's turn they take four damage both of those are pretty good so like dinosaurs seems really good but given that there are no two mana dinosaurs at common and one kind of weaker three mana dinosaur at common i feel like there will be some good dinosaur decks, but you can't really like plan to draft it based on commons. You need to just like ideally get past some uncommons, get the sense that most of the rest of the table is not in, and then move into it. It's a very, very uncommon-based archetype, is kind of what I'm getting at here. So then the other uh, archetype, uh, the secret 11th archetype, is caves. Um, caves structurally looks very similar to gates in that there's like one really, really strong uncommon payoff uh, in each color. There are technically two green uncommons that care about caves. Um, and then also some like decent support at commons, uh, at common. Um, I'm pretty into caves. I think most decks aren't very excited about drafting caves. And I think the uncommons look pretty strong to me. And I think that the fixing seems pretty available and not very contested i think that despite the fact that like caves are much weaker than uh gates for letting you play a five color deck um there's like a cave that makes your other caves tap for any color of mana and there are a bunch of things that let you search for a cave so like if you have that then you can just like get like the campus guide type guy the common two one that searches for a cave and then also the 4-mana 3-2 that searches for a cave and puts it into play um, to, like, fix your mana, like, instantly and perfectly. And then even if you don't have that, you can still potentially find the right caves and stuff like that. And then you can play, like, a multicolor deck where people aren't fighting you on fixing much in a set that has a lot of treasures. And uh, I think the payoffs that exist are pretty good. So, what are the signposts for the cave archetype? It's just all the uncommons that um, say cave on them. So, in white, you have Bat Colony, which is a three mana enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you make a bat for each mana spent from a cave to cast it. And whenever a cave enters the battlefield under your control, you put a +1 plus +1 one, plus one counter on a creature you control. Um, this is, you know, super good if you're playing. If you're getting three tokens off out of it, pretty good if you're getting two. Not very good if you're getting fewer than that. Calamitous Cave-In is the red one. It's a four-mana sorcery that deals X damage to each creature in each Planeswalker, where X is the number of caves you control plus the number of caves in your graveyard. So this is very, very similar to uh, the gate payoff, the gate payoff only cost three mana. The black one is an eight-mana 5-5 five, five lifelink that costs one less for each cave you control in each cave in your graveyard. There's an uncommon... Uh, three mana artifact that when it enters the battlefield, you can look at the top six cards of your library and put a land from among them onto the battlefield tapped. Um, and then you can craft it with a cave for six mana to make a five-five. And then there's Splunking, which is a three-mana enchantment, also green. When it enters the battlefield, you draw a card, then you can put a land from your hand onto the battlefield. If you put a cave onto the battlefield, you gain four life, and then lands you control enter the battlefield untapped. So this uh Is like explore for one extra mana that gains four life if you're like a dedicated cave deck, and then also means that all your caves are no longer tap lands, which is pretty big. The blue one, uh, Sinuous Benthosaur, is a six mana four four. When it enters the battlefield, look at the top X cards of your library, where X is the number of caves you control plus caves in your graveyard. Put two of those cards into your hand and the rest of them, uh, on the bottom of your library in a random order. So, um ETB draw two on a four 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 six where you actually get selection is quite good, and then the um, colorless uncommon cave enabler is the format mana three two that when it enters you can search your library for a basic lander cave and put it on the battlefield tap then shuffle. So I think that package looks pretty good, and then you also just get the various things that the actual caves are doing for you, and then you know the other kind of I, I talked about how. I think, like, Jeskai and Soltai make sense. Esper might make some sense. It's not very high synergy, but I think it combines a bunch of decks that are reasonably looking to be controlling. Mardu isn't super high synergy, but there might be some kind of, like, go-wide sack angle. Uh, And then none of the other 3 color pairs really make particular sense to me. Obviously, you know, there's going to be reasons to be like any two colors splashing any third color just based on specific cards you see like if you just open a powerful card when you were drafting a deck that was some other colors but as far as uh decks that have like meaningful overlap in synergies between their things that's what i think is going on i know that black green is doing uh you know the like self mill descend thing it's signpost uncommon is a three mana three three that gets plus two plus two and trample if you have descend four and gets plus uh, two plus two more and can't be blocked by multiple creatures I think if you have descend eight um, there's you know you're looking for explore and descend and self mill stuff to uh, turn that on um, and then there are a bunch of descend payoffs um, I think it's a pretty straightforward you know uh, slower archetype, but with, you know, the, um, the ability to, to turn, turn the corner quickly, like it has a bunch of big stuff and good grinding power. So that's, that's what I put together. So I'm going to turn it over to chat for additional questions and discussion as always. Um, if you are interested in, uh, supporting the show, um, check out patreon.com slash drafting for all of the offerings. Also the you know detailed lists here of all the cards that I was looking at for these archetypes and what they do are here uh are available in the notes to uh patrons at the second tier or above. What are the archetypes I consider strongest first impression? Um blue red looks pretty good. Blue white might be good, I'm not sure. I I think Sultai makes sense, and I think White-Black actually seems pretty good to me, and I'm definitely interested in caves. How easy do I think it would be to get good fixing for splashing? So I think that uh, it depends on what you consider good fixing, but I think that the fixing that exists isn't going to be very contested. So if you're willing to play some two ones that search for a cave, then like a cave or basic, then like I think you can get those pretty freely. The fixing is definitely weaker than it is in Wild's Veldrain, but um I, I think it's possible to make it work. Um, but we'll we'll see how much weaker. This is definitely going to be mostly a two color set, very, very much unlike Wild's Veldrain. How do you think a Braid is going to play? Like, Ultra Premium Removal or just pretty good? Uh, ultra Premium Removal. It's going to... I mean, it kills... Like, there are so many artifacts, and then it also kills most creatures. I think it's going to be, like, a little bit medium against green decks, I guess, but fantastic other than that. Do you think cards that say Descend 8 are feasible for decks other than dedicated self mill? No. Um, I think that, like... You should not plan on Descend Eight happening if you're not like really working for it. Like you might end up playing some weirdly grindy Control Mirror or something, but it'll happen in a very, very, very small portion of your game if you're not games if you're not actively putting cards in your graveyard and some way. Is this a sixteen land format? Hard no. Like caves let you use extra lands for a uh, spell like effect. There are also a bunch of mana sinks in the crafting um there's not a ton of fixing there are a bunch of mana sinks i mean you know there might end up being some like dedicated two color aggro decks that end up shaving land but i think i would rather just put an extra cave in my deck or whatever how much do you value map tokens roughly a blood or considerably worse i think more or less blood power level which equipment cards do i think are best this is not something i've researched but i can think about it quick uh, I don't know if we count Idol of the Deep King as an equipment card. Um, that's the uh, three mana flash artifact that deals two damage to any target when it enters, and then you can craft it into an equipment. And then similarly, Sunfire Torch is uh, red equipment that's red to play, and equipped creature gets plus one plus zero. Oh, and when it attacks, you can sacrifice the torch to do two damage to any target, which is like barely an equipment, mostly like a shock that sometimes pumps your guys. Um, I think both of those are solid Malamet scythe is also like kind of barely an equipment, like it's mostly a flash aura that's the three mana two two flash or three mana flash equipment that attaches itself when it enters and equipped creature gets plus two plus two, but then you can equip it for four. I think that card's like decent but also not super equipment I think in general, equipment in this set looks a bit better than it has been lately i think like pirate hats pretty interesting that's two mana for an equipment that has equipped pirate one and otherwise equipped two Equip creature gets plus one plus one and has uh when this attacks draw a card then discard a card this is a good set for draw and discard and there are like a lot of flyers that you can put this on and then i think among the uncommon equipment uh diamond pickaxe is probably the best that's the red indestructible equipped creature as plus one plus one and when it attacks make a treasure that's two to equip. Alright. I think that's going to wrap up this preview. We'll have a lot more information uh after playing with this out tomorrow and uh over the next week. So this covers my ability to speculate at this point and uh we'll see how much changes uh when I talk to you next week. So have a good week. Enjoy early access those of you are playing or watching or well a lot of you that's already passed pre-release and all that uh enjoy the pre-release this weekend i suppose and um i look forward to uh learning how this actually plays rather than how it kind of looks like it might play uh have a good week and i'll see you next week prepare for light speed